So we've been talking about uh, the question. Uh, we've been going through big questions that many unbelievers in our Oikos ask us. And we're talking last week and, and today about the questions, why are Christians so hypocritical, nasty, and judgmental? And so we're just going to do a very quick review for people that weren't here. Um, many of us have people in our oikos that just say, I reject Christianity because it's full of hypocrites. People have had bad experiences with Christians. They've felt judged by Christians. And this can often be a very big stumbling block. It's the Bible verse that every Christian knows. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, right? Lest you shall be judged. I made the point last week that there is a sense, and we've been talking all year about evidences for the Christian faith and why Christianity is true, but there's another sense in which our own lives are evidence and that we are evidence for Christianity. And when we act in ways, I, I said last week, when we act like arrogant jerks, it's not very becoming. It's not a living invitation that I want to be a part of, right? <laughs> we don't really want to be part of that. So we talked about Matthew 7, 1 last week when uh, the big thing that we talked about last week is this whole uh, plank in your eye analogy and talking about how the big point that Jesus is trying to make here is that we don't see what's in our own eye. We don't look at our own eye until we look at in the mirror, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly looking out at other people's issues and thinking, well, if you would only change this one thing, then I could love you better. Or I would be more open to talking to you, right? And, but we don't see our own issues, our own judgments about other people. And so what we want to do is kind of hold up a mirror. That's what we started to do last week to become more aware of some of our judgments, and we talked about how Matthew 7 is not talking about ultimate judgment. It's not talking about the judging of who goes to heaven or who goes to hell. It's a different kind of a judgment that we have in our everyday life. So we started this. This is kind of where we left off last week, is that the big problem is superficial judging. We looked extensively at Matthew 23, that our tendency is to judge people from the outside, we make superficial judgments about how people look, how they dress, the people that they're associated with, what political groups they're in, how they talk. Yeah. Um, do they have an accent or do they sound educated? We make all kinds of judgments about people. And we have a tendency to judge what I call to make what I call superficial judgments. We judge from the outside, whereas Jesus is t in admonishing his people that in the kingdom of God, we ought to judge like Jesus, and we want to judge people's character and to be people of justice and mercy and generous forgiveness. And so we talked a lot about how it's the inside that's important, and that's how God judges, is from the inside, not from the outside. So last week, one of the points I made is that there's, there's uh, ways that we can answer this whole hypocrisy charge just based on logic. I don't necessarily recommend that you do that, however, with your oikos, because it's, 
it, it will probably not be very satisfying to them unless they're a fairly analytical person or something like that. Because really what you're dealing with is people's pain from being judged. And the pain of hypocritical Christians who have hurt them. That's the real issue for most people. And so you have to differentiate between the, the kind of the quip that we might say is like, oh, well, we're all hypocrites. Come on to our church, just you'll be another one and join us. Okay? That is not a very satisfying answer to people's pain that they have likely experienced as a result of being judged. And we talked last week a little bit about different judgments people have had about us. I love Mrs. Gady's story that she said that people judge her. They'd, someone shared recently they thought she was stuck up. And she says, no, I'm just reserved. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful. People make judgments about me all the time. They have all kinds of judgments. We make judgments all the time. So what I'd ask you to do this week is to become aware and just start to notice some of your judgments. The general answer to this issue is I think that the best answer to bad Christianity is good Christianity. When somebody's been hurt and you're trying to witness to them and they've been hurt by other Christians, kind of your main mission, at least at the beginning, is to be an, an amazing representative of Jesus and to love them generously because somebody who names the name of Christ has really profoundly hurt them. And so you're going to kind of have to make that part of your primary mission is to be evidence of better Christianity in that, in that sense. And that can take some time. Um, so I'm going to put forth a few points here for us to consider additionally. That's just a big picture point. The first point I want to make is that the Father's love for outsiders, or we might say for unbelievers, is bigger than we realize. It's much bigger than we realize. That's right. So I wanted you to think about the story of Jonah for a minute. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. And if you can remember back to uh, the, about the seventh grade, uh, the Assyrian Empire was the most brutally uh, brutal warfare empire of the ancient world. They would skin people alive and hang up their skins on stakes if you tried to um, rebel against them, if you tried to resist them in any ways. They would enforce peoples that they conquered to intermarry with other people that they conquered because it would be a way of diluting the culture and diluting their identity. The Assyrians were brutal uh, in the art of war, and that's just a historical fact. Um, so I want you to imagine for a moment Jonah, the only prophet who's called to preach the, to the Gentiles. All the other prophets go to the Jews, to God's people who already have the revelation of God. They already have the law of Moses. But God calls Jonah to go to the ancient equivalent of ISIS. And he, yeah, and he says, these people are not in my political party. I'm out of here. And he's on the first ship in the opposite direction going to Spain. Okay. 
he doesn't want to have anything to do with bringing good news to ISIS. He says, these are wicked people. They, they will kill me. I will be unsafe. I want you to think about it in modern terms, that the Father's love is much bigger than we realize. The parable of the Good Samaritan. These are the people who were living in the land that were making the land unclean in the Jewish eyes. They were the foreign interlopers in the land. And they were people that were unliked, unwanted. They were looked upon as, as being culturally, uh, bringing the whole culture down. And Jesus picks this Samaritan as the hero of his parable. The father's love is bigger than we realize. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. And the radical part of that message is that what he was saying is for God so loved the father loved Jews and Gentiles that he sent his only begotten son. This is a disturbing and uncomfortable message of the, the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of the father. And so when Pastor John said last week, we need to keep in mind that everyone is invited to the party. He, 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 let me explain who's in the set of everyone. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that kind of important, though, that they quit cutting heads off? Well, hopefully with the transformation of the Holy Spirit, that would happen. But that is what the Holy Spirit does. He changes hearts. And if someone needs a change of heart... They need the Holy Spirit. People don't get cleaned up first and then come to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms them. And so when we think about the Father's love for outsiders, we have to get a bigger view of the love of the Father if we're going to share the Lord with our oikos. Because we want to think God's thoughts. We want to come in conformity with the image of Christ, to have the mind of Christ. And that is that we want to have a love that is big as the Father's. And it's uncomfortable for us because we have a tendency to think, well, I don't know if I can love that person because they're pretty wicked. And they do wicked things. It's uncomfortable. But we talked last week with Pastor John that the kingdom of God is a party. Our problem is we only want to include the people that we like or who are like us. You ever have one of those kind of parties? You know, like when you're in the fourth grade, you're only inviting the people that you like, and you don't want the word to get out to the weird girl because you don't want her coming. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is fourth grade girl thinking. This is how children think, is I only want to invite certain people, but that's not the kind of party that God is throwing in his kingdom. Jesus' invitation is to everyone. All may come. There's no pre-qualification. These are some specific biblical examples. Men and women are invited. Clean Jews, unclean Jews, Gentiles, sinners. They're all invited to the party. It's our job in the, the, the parable that Pastor John looked at last week, the, the, 
the parable of the party, that what does he tell them to do? He says, go out into the streets. Go out into the byways. Bring them in. Because the kingdom of God is a party. Outsiders are, in, are invited. And the party is big enough for everyone. It's a beautiful analogy. But what's the first thought that we have about people? That we ought to have about people? It's that, look at that person. Not, I want to be afraid of them or I want to stay away from them. Rather, Jesus loves that person. And Jesus wants to invite them to his party. Holy Spirit, do you want me to get in a conversation with that person? To invite them to your party? You know, that's, that's a much different mindset. And this includes dirty people, difficult people. This is, this is a whole different way of thinking. I'm trying to just open our hearts a little bit wider to reflect on the love of God a little bit more. And to not get so hung up in all of the exceptions first. But to, to be a stand for love first. Number two is God judges character. We kind of alluded to this already, not outward appearance. So let's look at John chapter 7. The context here is Jesus is teaching at a feast. And the Jews are just constantly amazed that, you know, Jesus didn't seem to go to rabbi college. He didn't have the right credentials. And they're like, how does he, how does he know so much? And they're amazed, you know, you didn't get your Ph.D. in the conventional way. Uh, how are you accomplishing this is sort of their, their question to him back in verse 15. And, and then he talks about how his teaching is not his own. It's from his father. And um, then in the context of our verse is um, in verse 21, he says, I did one miracle and you were all astonished. In other words, like, look. There's so much more available here for you. And I'm just doing this, this one thing, and you're astonished. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. And I think that this is a good parallel passage to the Matthew 7 passage that we looked at last week. It's not that Jesus is calling us to never judge anything. It's he wants us to make right judgments. And he wants us to be generous in, being, in, in not judging by outward appearances. And that judging someone on their outward appearances is not really a great way to go about judging. We want to be careful in how we judge. An unbeliever's clothes, hairstyles, race, profession, and language are all outward appearances that God doesn't really care about. See, he has this issue of the, of the healing on the Sabbath. And he says, you're more worked up about me healing on the Sabbath than you are about some guy getting whole. You have your priorities all mixed up. You know, let's not create hindrances to coming to Jesus that Jesus doesn't create. Let's not give people a message that, well, if you show up at church and you're wearing a baseball cap inside the sanctuary, that that's going to be a problem. 
I'm not sure Jesus cares as much about the baseball cap as that he is that the unbeliever is there. It's a, it, it's, it's, I just would say don't let it be an obstacle to you thinking about that person or devaluing that person. To look, to, to look at them from the father's point of view, do you think the father is more worried about their baseball hat or the, their, their, whether they're near or far from him? Pastor John has this big vision that we're going to invite people from our Oikos to, to church. We're actually going to invite them here. No. And are we, are we going to make this a welcoming place? Are we going to make this a place where we're going to... Yeah, we're going to make them sit outside. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's hard because we have judgments about what's appropriate, don't we? And how you should appropriately show up to church. But what if that person has never been to church? They don't know what's appropriate. So our goal here is to judge the way God does. Because it doesn't say God doesn't judge. It says judge rightly. In Matthew 23, the passage we looked at last week is God judges the heart. He judges our attitudes and our character, whether we are just and merciful and generous in our forgiveness. So the solution to judging incorrectly, which is outward appearance, is judging correctly. It's not no judging at all. That's not what the the scriptures are teaching. The third point I want to make is that there's a difference between a Christian who struggles with sin and a hypocrite. Those are two very different ideas. If you're struggling with a sin, go to the Holy Spirit and ask for help. He welcomes repentance and he facilitates transformation. But a hypocrite doesn't struggle to overcome his sin. He just tries to hide his sin. He's a person that has a PhD in hiding his sin. You know, this is what they do. So when, pe- when outsiders will tell us that, you know, all Christians are hypocrites, I don't think that's actually true. All Christians are still sinners. But a hypocrite technically is somebody who has one appearance in public and another appearance behind closed doors, a way of behaving. And so it's not actually true to say that all Christians are hypocrites. We could say all Christians are sinners. But many Christians are trying to struggle with their sin. They're asking the Holy Spirit for help and mercy in their sin. They're trying to repent of their sin. How many of you, um, there was a sin issue in your life when you came to faith in Christ that's less of an issue today? Yeah. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you, right? And that's the power of transformation. But everyone's in a different place. And so if a new believer is still struggling with things, that's okay. This doesn't make them a hypocrite. It makes them normal. Human. Human. A Christian with the Holy Spirit day by day, putting to death the flesh and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, number four. The church should judge hypocritical behavior. This is oh so important. The church is actually called to be, in a sense, God's judge on earth in certain situations. Now, again, we're not talking about ultimate judgment of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. But when we notice behavior from people who name the name of Christ but are not living in a way that's consistent with the kingdom of God, 
the Bible gives us some steps that we ought to follow. Matthew chapter 18 is a very critical passage about this. Matthew chapter 18 talks about what to do when a brother sins against you, starting in verse 15. It says, when a brother sins against you, go to him. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. In other words, go to him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. I mean, do you not know how seldom we do this? People don't want to hear it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> you have to, you, the responsibility is on you to go have the conversation. That's your job is to go to them in private and say, hey, you know what? This hurt me. This week came to me and said, uh, something you said three weeks ago hurt my feelings and it's still hurting. And I said, okay, thank you. Thank you for telling me. This is what he was doing was this step. He didn't go gossip about it. He didn't go report me to HR. He didn't... Uh, tell a bunch of people to turn them against me. He just came to me in private and he talked to me. But that's the biblical thing to do. It doesn't matter if they're open to it or what their response is. It's on you. If someone has hurt you, go to them in private and talk to them. That's the biblical thing to do. At, uh, my friend, uh, an acquaintance who's a pastor at Mosaic in Pomona, they have a standing rule that if someone in the church tries to report something that somebody did to hurt somebody else, they say, I'm not listening to that. You've got 48 hours to go talk to that person and work it out. Cuts down on the gossip. That's what gossip is. It's when you're not telling the person that you need to tell, you're telling everybody else. So if someone hurts you, follow the rule, you'll get a lot farther in your, in your life. Go talk to them. Now, but now, if they, what happens if they don't listen to you? If they don't listen, then take two or three others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, take some people with you that have seen or experienced the same troubling behavior. This is what you ought to do with abusive people or alcoholics or addicts in your family. Is when you have, when you're a wife and you go to your addicted husband and he won't repent and he won't change, then you take maybe some other members of your family that have been impacted by his addiction with you. Uh, these days in our vernacular, we call that an intervention. That's just the biblical idea of what's in Matthew 18. You're taking witnesses that have also been impacted by this troubling behavior. If you can't get witnesses, it might be something you need to deal with for yourself. Maybe. Okay, so then hopefully they repent. They come to their senses and they realize, oh, wow, okay, I have a pattern of behavior here. But if they don't, then what do you do? You take it to the next level. You start talking to the church leaders. And then hopefully they repent. But see, our problem in the church today is that we don't do this process. And we don't judge rightly. And... We don't judge people's character because we're too busy judging people's outward appearance and gossiping when people hurt us. So the call for unity isn't a call to ignore differences or to ignore people's sin. 
problems. It's, to, you know, Jesus explains what to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul uses a real-life example in the church there in Corinth where there's a problem of uh, a son and his stepmother being sexually involved with each other. And he's saying, you know, why are you tolerating this? You need to do something. That's judging. But that's the right kind of judging. That when there's a persistent, habitual problem that has been confronted and handled in the right way, the church has the obligation, I think, to deal with it. Our problem, as I alluded to last week, is that we often do not do this with our leaders. And we allow abusive, ongoing, habitual behavior, especially abusive behavior of emotional and psychological abuse on church staffs to harm people over the long haul. And then we wonder why we have such high turnover rates in churches with people. People get sick of it. And we tolerate it because the person has a title and they're the leader and we don't deal with sin. So uh, the church should judge hypocritical behavior. Okay, now we're going to play a couple of video clips because I want to talk about what can we do? What are some things that we can think about in our own behavior? Tension reached a boiling point today outside of a Trump rally in Ohio. What started off So he's obviously oh, really? someone's, yeah. you know? So we're looking for the owner. So you're, you're a Hillary supporter, are you? I am. And wait, I don't know if they're like in line or. Are you a Trump supporter? And you are wearing. Um... <laughs> yes, I am. Hey there, little fella. What a beautiful dog. Mike, would you like to pet the dog? Oh, look at that. I have my own dog. I wouldn't want right. my dog lost or anything, you know? Yeah, definitely. I have a golden retriever, too. Oh, yeah? I've been a dog lover forever. And I am, too. Yeah, the dogs don't criticize. Right, right. Especially my golden retriever. He'd be laying on our feet right now. <laughs> oh, look! Apparently, when it comes to dogs, there's no political party. You know, I didn't ever expect myself to agree with the Trump supporter on something. <laughs> we do agree that we love dogs, and dogs 
love us. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally, if you go talk person to person, they care about each other and Absolutely. they care about kids. They care about God, and um, unfortunately, that's not what gets out in the media. Things like this give us hope that we can all find common ground in some places, and um, I think that was what we were just a part of. <laughs> we have our differences, but everyone loves dogs. So what did you notice? When we have political alignments, we automatically have a lot of judgments about each other, right? There's good, a good bridge builder, That's right? right? Mm -hmm. And some simple human kindness. I just thought that was such a great ad because of all the animosity in the election. And when I saw that ad for the first time, I thought, "That's brilliant," yeah. because we forget we're so busy judging each other based on our political alignments that we just forget about the humanity and how we ought to look for things similar. There's value in looking for ways of building bridges with people. And there's value in finding just basic kindness with each other. Because the way the world looks at us is not unlike how it looks at whatever the opposite political affiliation they have. They, that we're the enemy. And they, they don't want us around. They don't want to talk to us. They think that we're irrational. They think that we're narrow-minded and we're bigoted and they have a lot of judgments about us. So we've got to work to kind of overcome some of their judgments. That's what I meant earlier when I said, you know, sometimes the best answer to bad Christianity is good Christianity and being something different than their stereotype. I love it when an unbeliever says to me, you are so different than any Christian I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And then I think, oh, we might be getting somewhere. <laughs> so the second one we're going to watch here, uh, this is a beer commercial, so I'm hoping nobody reports me to JD. Um, but it could just as easily be coffee or, a, a, yeah, a diet soda or Starbucks. Okay, so try not to get all caught up in the, the beer issue and just look at the, what it, the message of what it's talking about. Okay, I'm not advocating beer. <laughs> I would describe my political views as the new right. I say that I'm left. Feminism today is man-hating. I would describe myself as a feminist 100%. I don't believe that climate change exists. We're not taking enough action on climate change. And it's about time these people got off the high horse and started looking for credible problems that actually exist. It's absolutely critical that trans people have their own voice. That's not right. You can't, you know, you're, you're a man, be a man, or you're a female, be a female. Women do need to remember that we need you to have our children. Could I be friends with someone that says a woman's place is in the home? Um... Right, okay, well, I'm an expert at flat packs. If you have any trouble, just watch me. So it looks like I've got your instructions here. I think so. Let me help you. Let's have just that bit there. Describe what it is like to be you in five adjectives. Okay, 
frustrating. Dedicated. Opinionated. Lucky. Ambitious. Offensive. Solemn. I have ups and downs. Strong. I don't want to say attacked. Misunderstood. Name three things you and I have in common. We're both male, we're both confident, and we're both loudly spoken. We know each other better than people who've known each other for ten minutes should. You seem quite ambitious and positive, and you've got this really, um, got a glow. Do you know what I'm <laughs> saying? Your aura's pretty cool. I'm sensing. Are you, uh, for military or something? People have said that, but there is no, really? there is no history. So are you, then? Ex. Ex-military? Um, yeah. If you're ex-military, I'm very proud of you already. Well... So... I grew up... Uh, in a bit of a rough state. I've experienced homelessness. I've known what it's like to have absolutely nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely most grateful just, just for life. We've only just met, but I think you're the sort of person that would listen to me and we'd have a discussion rather than argue. Yeah, you could hang out with, man. Let's go. My chance. Goodness sake. You're right, mate. Fitter than a look. Perfect. Oh, yeah. There you go. Basically, I think we just bought a bar. Yeah. Okay. Here you are. <laughs> Each take a bottle and place it on its corresponding markings on the bar. Attention. Please now stand to watch a short film. Feminism today is definitely an excuse for misandry, man-hating. If somebody said to me that climate change is destroying the world, then I'd say that is total piffle. So transgender, it is very odd. We're not set up to understand or see things like that. I am a daughter, a wife. I am transgender. I feel like the battle for feminism definitely isn't done. The fight is never going to be over, if I'm honest with you. You now have a choice. You may go or you can stay and discuss your differences over a beer. I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> you happy for a second then? Well, I'm having a drink. I'm having a drink. Yeah. I want to discuss. Beer. Yeah, beer and discuss. Cheers. At the end of the day, mate. I've reaching out to people, with you. yeah. And, you know, even if you wanted to convince people about your point, the productive thing to do would be to sit it's down engaged. and have a engage. It's engage. I've been brought up in a way where everything's black and white. But life isn't black and white. Yeah, I'm just me. <laughs> yeah. Smash the patriarchy. <laughs> I'll give you my mobile number, you give me yours, uh -huh. and we'll keep in touch. I'd have to tell my girlfriend that I'll be texting another girl. <laughs> she might be a bit upset with that, but I'll have to get round there. I'll have to tell my girl that she'll have to lump it. <laughs> so if they had come into it and they had known that their differences up front, what do you th they would have had a lot more judgments yeah. about each other, wouldn't they? Yeah. And they d but because of the nature of the experiment, they didn't know anything. And then they started liking the person. And then they find out, oh, wait a minute. You're like representing the opposite of what I think life is about, my worldview. And what I think is brilliant about that ad is that it, to me, when I first saw it, I thought, wow, that really challenges me to think about my judgments. And I wonder how often I don't engage in conversations, what I miss out on with other people. Because... Remember the, our first point today about the Father's love being bigger than we realize. So here's some questions for reflection for our behavior. How good are we doing at representing the love of the Father, especially to outsiders? 
Are we putting any unnecessary obstacles in the way of unbelievers in order to come into a relationship with Jesus? The problem with hypocrisy is that hypocrites are generally unaware of their hypocrisy. And I would add to that, um, our judgment, we're generally also unaware of our judgments. And that's really a lot of what the Matthew 7 passage is about. So I think the cure then is to uh, be vigilant about noticing how we judge others. That's just like a great first step of noticing like, okay, I have a lot of judgments about people in this group. Or I have a lot of judgments of people that look like that or talk that way. And just to, just to notice that in myself, and I'm not necessarily even talking about what to do with that uncomfortable space, just give yourself a space to notice that I, I have judgments. And that is as ancient as humanity, I think. And that's why Jesus teaches us about that. And so the first step is we want to look in the mirror. And part of that looking in the mirror is noticing. Noticing our judgments. Um, a lot of times, I mentioned this last week, a lot of times I'll just say out loud, I'm stuck in a judgment about this person. And I'll just put it out there. And I'll tell a trusted friend or my husband, and I'll say, I'm stuck in a judgment about this person. I'm telling myself that this person's not open to the gospel because of the way they're dressed. Or I'm telling myself that God's not powerful enough to change their life because this person is so broken. I'm making a judgment. I'm telling myself a story about this person. So much storytelling. I do this so much. And so I'm always trying to think of ways of how to overcome that. So verbalizing it helps. helps you become more conscious and more aware that you're in a judgment. And then you can begin to explore the judgment and to start asking the Lord about the judgment and ask for his truth about that person. That's the the lens change. I love the the example of the billboards and how you used to think, well, why would a woman ever degrade herself like that? And then you had what I call a supernatural lens change. Mm -hmm. And then you said, I'm going to start praying for those women. That's when you're noticing you're in a judgment and then you start asking the Lord for his truth about that person. How can I pray for this person? How can I partner with you, Jesus, in how you are interceding to the Father for, on this person's behalf. Because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's probably already at work doing something in that person's life. So I want to join in that prayer with Jesus. You know, how is he interceding for the Father? Is it to send harvest workers across the person's path? Is it to uh, convict the person of their sins? Is it to bring comfort to them? Is it to set them free from their bondage? What is it that is on the Father's heart about that person? That's the vision I want to have. That's the supernatural lens that I want to look at them through, not just their clothes or their lack of clothes or, (laughs) you know, their hats or uh, their accent or their socioeconomic status. They're bigger than that. They're deeper than that. Tell yourself a different story about the person. And so when we see someone, rather than instantly falling into a story of, well, they're this kind of person and they're in this political party and they have these alignments 
and they have this much brokenness say, wow, I wonder what their story is that brought them to this moment that caused them to make these decisions. And I wonder what my life would be like if I had made different choices. Yeah. You know, there are many moments in my life where I could have ended up much differently than how I am now. Many, many moments. Tell yourself a different story about the person, their situation. Give them the benefit of the doubt. This is what I think Jesus means in, in Matthew 7, and I think it was Luke 10 that we read last week, that uh, being generous in, in our lack of judgments toward other people, giving them the benefit of the doubt till you know their story. Ask for a different perspective from a trusted friend and what I call looking for different data. <laughs> maybe there's data that you don't know about. Uh, maybe there's things that's happened to this person that you aren't aware of that has caused them to be in this current situation. Be curious about that rather than judgmental. So I hope that this little escapade the last couple of weeks will help you in your Oikos conversations to think about the wideness of the invitation. And then when someone comes to faith, part of that process, yes, is repentance of sin. And yes, it is transformation. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's not our job to force that to happen. And to look for those changes in that person's life and to walk with them in life as they're going through those uncomfortable changes and going and walking in new ways. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for all the people in this class and just what huge hearts they have for the people in their oikos. And that we want to be a living invitation of the Father's love and how deep and how wide and how high it is. Help us to be generous in our invitations to your party. That your marriage supper of the Lamb is waiting for us. And that we are the flag bearers. We are the people who are inviting others to your party. We are saying, come on, let's go, come with me. It's going to be amazing. The freedom that awaits you in Jesus will change your life. Help us to be a living invitation. Help us to not put stumbling blocks in their way that you don't put in their way. Help us to not put millstones around people's necks that they must carry around in bondage before they can come to you. Help us to be ambassadors of freedom and reconciliation in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.